two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you, Rebecca. Welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Gall. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. Now, before we get to this episode, a couple of mistakes that I need to clear up from a couple previous episodes, plus an addition from the immediate previous episode. Mm. First of all, when we were talking about the first two Godfather movies, I mentioned some of the other movies that Gordon Willis shot in the same decade that he shot the first two Godfathers, one of them being All the President's Men, which I mistakenly said had one Best Picture when it was only nominated for Best Picture. It lost that year to Rocky. Secondly, when we were talking about the fact that um, the studio era cinematographers who were still working when the 60s rolled around and directors started to want to push towards natural light and less studio light. That one instance where a director and a cinematographer clashed on that was on Bonnie and Clyde. And I mistakenly identified the cinematographer of Bonnie and Clyde as Robert Surtees. In actuality, it was Burton Gaffey. Um, whereas Robert Surtees was the cinematographer of The Graduate. And on that film, unlike on Bonnie and Clyde, Surtees was happy to do what Mike Nichols wanted to do as far as lighting goes. And then finally, on our last episode regarding Children of Men, I should have mentioned, in the interest of full disclosure, that at the video store I worked at and became manager of, Alfonso Cuaron was, for a while, a customer at the store. And I can't say we were friends because we only chatted a couple times, but he was always nice to me. And his family was customers there as well. So I should have mentioned that in the interest of full disclosure. So now I, I don't I don't think we've got any real conflict of interest here, but sure. <laughs> no, I understand. It's just that, you know, I think it's always good to mention these things. Fair. Now that we've gotten that a, out of the way, uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about backstage movies. Backstage, in this particular case, from the theater. The theater has uh, long held a hallowed place in Hollywood history, even though there are those who say that movies are movies and theater is theater and ne'er shall the twain meet. You know, Hollywood has gotten a lot of its actors from theater, directors from theater, and they've adapted quite a few plays to be in the movies. So it makes sense that there would be a lot of movies about the theater. And we're going to look at two of my all-time favorite movies about the theater, Stage Door, directed by Gregory LaCava, Gregory excuse me, and All About Eve, written and directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Also, Stage Door was adapted from a play, while All About Eve was later remade into a stage musical. Also, both films center on women and both of them are known for their dialogue but the approaches they take 
are wildly different, and we'll get to that. But first, Claude here is going to give us the description for Stage Door. Yeah, so we are in the Footlights Club, which is a boarding house for aspiring actresses in New York City. Uh, Terry Randall, played by Katherine Hepburn, is a new arrival to the Footlights Club, and she immediately turns off all the other residents because she has a little bit of a superior attitude and rather of a polished manner. Uh, she winds up sharing a room with Jean Maitland, who is played by Ginger Rogers, who assumes that Terry's expensive clothes come from a sugar daddy. In fact, we learn later on that Terry comes from a wealthy family in the Midwest and that she's there over her father's objections. Her father, incidentally, is played by Samuel S. Hines in a kind of small role. At any rate, she's there to fulfill her dreams, but the only person who seems to take to her at all is one of the other women in the boarding house, an older actress named Anne Luther, played by Constance Collier. Adolf Manju is a Broadway producer by the name of Anthony Powell, who has no scruples about using desperate young women for his own lascivious purposes. Uh, Powell sees Jean dancing with her partner Annie, played by a 14-year-old Ann Miller, and he dumps his current protege, Linda, to pursue Jean. Jean is more or less wise to his scheme, but she goes along with it for Annie's sake and ultimately finds herself falling for him, despite warnings from that previous girl, Linda, who also lives at the Footlights Club. Now, among the other residents of the club is Kay Andrews, who is played by Andrea Leeds. Kay had been in a play about a year earlier that did very well, but it didn't translate into continued success, so she's been looking for work ever since. She's hoping to get the leading role in Powell's newest play, Enchanted April. When she finally gets an appointment to see Powell, he cancels on her, and she faints, partly out of disappointment, but mostly out of malnutrition because she's been starving herself the last couple of weeks. Terry and Jean happen to be in Powell's waiting room when this happens, and Terry busts into Powell's office to give him hell about the cancellation. The other housemates hear about it, and they start warming up to her a little bit. Now, we learn that Enchanted April might not even happen unless Powell can get funding for it, and a surprise angel comes in with a proposition that we don't hear about right away. The next thing we know, Powell has decided to give Terry the lead role in Enchanted April, and he invites her up to his penthouse to give her the news. But Terry's wise to his tactics, and she starts to call him out on it. And that's when Jean shows up unannounced, and Terry, sensing an opportunity to save Jean from his philandering ways, pretends that he's been seducing her. It works, but now things at the boarding house have gotten very tense, and of course Terry getting the part that Kay had counted on has just broken her heart. Further complicating matters is that Terry is both terrible in the part and, ter and difficult to work with. She's bad enough that Powell is trying to get out of his contract with the investor to no effect. On opening night, Kay meets with Terry and gives her two things. First is her take on how she viewed the reading of the opening lines. And second is a ring she had worn during that play the previous year, and she wishes her luck. Shortly after Terry leaves for the theater, Kay commits suicide by jumping out the window. Jean comes to Terry's dressing room and confronts her about the suicide, and Terry wants to bail out, but Anne talks her into going on for both theatrical tradition and to honor Kay. Uh, Terry does, in fact, go on, and she gives a remarkable heartfelt performance, and this is where we learn that the play's investor was Terry's father, who was actually disappointed that the play is a hit because he funded the play hoping she would fail and return home. During her curtain call, Terry gives a speech offering tribute to Kay, and she and the other women are reconciled. And then we jump forward about several months anyway. Enchanted April is still a hit, but Terry is still living at the Footlights Club. And a few things have changed, but many things haven't. And as we leave the club, we see a newcomer arriving at the boarding house, seeking a room while life goes on for the women. 
Okay, so a couple corrections there. Ooh, my. First of all, uh, Kay's last name is Hamilton, not Andrews. Oh, how'd I do that? Okay. And secondly, the woman who are in the waiting room when Kay faints and when Terry happens to come in and then decides to storm into Powell's office and give him a piece of her mind, not Jean. In fact, it's Judy played by Lucille Ball, and Eve, played by Eve Arden. They're there because Judy had made a bet that Terry wouldn't be able to get into Powell's office at all. And you find that out later after everyone has learned that Kay has been suffering from malnutrition or, as I think Eve puts it, that's Latin for not eating. Um, Judy mentions that it cost her buying Terry lunch. And that's when she says, I hate to admit it, but I'm beginning to revise my opinion of her. So it was Judy and Eve, not Jean, who were, who was there. Hmm. So getting somebody on. Somebody who's seen this film as many times as I had. You thought, man, I could have sworn Jean was in that, in that space. Okay. I knew there was somebody no. else there. But all right. No. I'll, but, I'll, I'll eat that. Okay. So, um, in our very first episode, Claude asked me what the goals of this podcast were. One goal I forgot to mention was every decade, Sight and Sound, which is a major British film magazine. They pull critics around the world asking them their picks for the best film of all time. Usually Citizen Kane wins that poll. The last time they did it, Vertigo won, uh, which was a surprise. Hmm. But anyway, the last time I did it, not that I'm someone whom Sight and Sound would ever think about contacting, but I decided to make up my own top, what I thought were the top 10 movies ever made of course, being me, turned out to be 11. And <laughs> I hope one of these, I hope as the podcast goes on, that we eventually cover all 11 movies. Stage Door is the third movie on that list that we've covered. The first two Godfather movies were the first two. Um, my father um, bought the VHS tape of this back when I was in high school and brought it home for us to watch. And I fell in love with it then. That was about 35 years ago. And I've been in love with this movie ever since. It's just an amazing movie. It really is. And I actually kind of felt bad because when I was doing my rewatch of this, uh, during the week last week, um, or actually, week before last, uh, I you know my I usually watch these films with my daughter because I like to get her take on things too. And in this particular case, she works in retail, and you know this is the time of year where people who work in retail are just getting no free time whatsoever. Right. So I was watching this, and it was shortly before she had to leave, and she was just about on her way out the door, and she kind of stopped. She hasn't seen the film before, and stayed with it for a couple of minutes, and found herself laughing. She's like, I really got to go. I was like, you know, she was actually riveted to this thing coming in somewhere in the middle and then, you know, finally having to bail out altogether. So I, you know, I'm going to have to get together with my daughter again, just to watch this film one more time. 
Right. So as I mentioned, this is based on a play by Mm -hmm. Edna Ferber, who's probably best known as a novelist. She wrote the novel that the movie Giant with Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, and the last performance of James Dean was based on. And the other playwright on the play was George F. Co- George S., excuse me, Kaufman, a well-known playwright and screenwriter. Uh, he also wrote the play that the Oscar-winning movie that came out the following year, You Can't Take It With You, was based on. And the play has some of the same characters in it, Terry Randall, Gene Maitland, and Kay Hamilton. And it's also set at the Footlights Club. And it's also about actresses trying to make it. But it's very different from the movie. For starters, um, there is actually a conventional romance between the character of Terry and a playwright, which has been completely dropped for the movie. Also... In the play, Terry's already established at the Footlights Club and is sort of like the den mother. And Jean is a lot less sympathetic in the play than she is in the film. In the play, she's just a social climber. And Kay is the new character. And although she ends up killing herself in the play as well, in the move in the play, it's not as poignant as it is in the movie because you don't get the fact that you know she once had this great glory and now she's pinning all of her hopes on this play, which is very close apparently to what she's experienced in real life. So it's all the more heartbreaking that she doesn't get it. And the whole machination of the Terry's father wanting to back the play and have Terry in it, that's not in the original play at all. Ironically enough, though, Hepburn was a stage actress as well at the time. And she went up for the character of Terry Randall when it was going to be a stage production, but the producer of the play vetoed it and cast Margaret Sullivan, who you old movie fans like myself would probably best know from the uh, Ernst Lubitsch, James Stewart romantic Mm -hmm. comedy for Christmas, the shop around the corner. So Sullivan played Uh, the part of Terry on stage instead. And she was going to be in the movie, but she got pregnant. So Hepburn got the role instead. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting what you mentioned about, about um, the case suicide and and it being kind of poignant. Cause for me, that was actually one of the weakest scenes in the movie, believe it or not. You know, I, I, you know, here, here's the thing is we had that scene with her and Terry where she is talking about, you know, first, like how she would how she would play the scene. And, you know, the thing about holding the flowers like like as though they were a baby. And then she gives Terry the ring. And at that point, you can kind of see that, that Kay has made a decision here. 
and she says goodbye to Terry. It's not, I'll see you later. It's not good luck. It's, you know, nothing like that. She says a literal goodbye. And then we get this kind of reverse angle as she starts coming up the stairs. And there's almost like the higher she goes up the stairs, the further down she descends into this madness that leads her to jumping out the window. And frankly, it, it man, it just didn't quite play for me. I, I, I think it would have been, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what would have really improved it. Maybe if, if the music hadn't gotten so dramatic or, or something, but it just, I, I, I don't know. I just, I wasn't quite buying like the way her expression was changing as she came up the stairs. Well, I mean, I do think that if memory serves, they copy that scene from another uh, movie that showed that same type of thing of an actress walking, uh, of a character walking up the stairs before deciding to jump out. But you have to remember, uh, we're still talking in the Hayes Code era. And during Hay- the Hayes Code era, you weren't allowed to mention suicide or anything like that. I'm sure they got away with this only because it was in the original play that she killed herself. But And there is a brief shot at the police station where the person taking a call says possible suicide, I think. But, um, you know, for content reasons, I'm sure they weren't allowed to do much. And I guess when I saw this as a teenager the first time, I didn't see that coming at all. So it really hit me. And I can see how someone might think it's corny, but I still buy it. I think I think the, the other thing that turned me off, though, was as she got close to the top of the stairs, she started hearing um, applause and crowds and that kind of thing. So now she's just kind of like living in this moment. So what are they trying to tell us? Like maybe she took a bow and just kept on going? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think she's clearly hallucinating. Mm. So that's what that um, is about. And the music that is um, going on here, by the way, is um, not score. It's uh, someone down in the lobby of the Footlights Club singing an old song called The Sailboat in the Moonlight and You. And we know that because after she gets to the very top, it cuts to the bottom where she's finishing the song and then everything's interrupted by one of the other women screaming at what happens. But getting back to the way this was changed from the play, um, Gregory LaCava, who was the director, was one of the directors working around that time, along with Leo McCary and Howard Hawks, who were notorious for not sticking with the script, especially when it came to comedies. They love to improvise. And what LaCava did for most of the actresses who were in the Footlights Club was he had them hang out together for two weeks and had a script assistant there taking down what they were saying to each other as they were hanging up, hanging out, excuse me. And a lot of that dialogue shows up in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Kaufman, 
who you remember was the original the original playwright or one of the two was at the time rather disgusted by how much the dialogue was changed. The credited writers at the time, and the story was changed. The credited writers on the movie, by the way, are Morris Riskind, who also wrote for Lakava, My Man Godfrey, and Anthony Weiler, who was mostly known later for the screenwriting work he did in tandem with John Huston. But Kaufman got so upset when he found out all that was changed that he said at one point, why don't they just call it screen door? Yeah. But he eventually admitted that the movie was better. And the reason why, I would argue, is the dialogue just sounds so natural. Even though taken out of context, it might sound sitcomish the way it's delivered in such a natural way back and forth between the characters is just astounding and funny and feels true to life. Yeah, it, it really, and, and, you know, and, and partly because, well, some of it is true to life. As you mentioned, we had the, the, the script girl who writing down like a lot of the stuff that they were saying. So it was very naturalistic, but it was also, it, it's got that, that rapid fire screwball kind of feel to it. And just everybody is just so smart and so witty and they're just able to like bang, 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 back and forth at each other that, that you can't help but get caught up in, in what they're saying. And, and I was thinking about this when we ran that, that clip from the very first episode and I was starting to wonder, like, are people going to understand what these characters are saying when we just drop it in without any other real context? It, it was one of those things where you kind of have to ramp yourself up to, to follow these characters as, as they're saying their thing. Yes. Ooh. And there are a number of scenes like the one we played in the uh, first episode that show just how clever they were at getting around what you couldn't say on screen. Like, for example, when uh, Linda is um, about to go meet Anthony Powell right after Jean yells up for her that Mr. Powell's car is waiting for her, there's an exchange between the two of them where um, Linda is saying about uh, Mr. Powell's chauffeur, and Jean cracks back, yes, but I understand Mr. Powell's chauffeur doesn't go as far in the car as Mr. Powell does. Right. And, 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 and then similarly, there's also the, the references to the sugar daddies, which they're not going to say, but they make references to just older relatives. And, and in fact, there's... When, when uh, Terry breaks out a photograph of her grandfather, Jean assumes automatically, well, this is her sugar daddy and not her actual grandfather. And so, you know, so there's the reference to the grandfather. And then um, Linda makes reference to um, her Aunt Susan all the time. Yes. And, that, and, and that's Jean, actually just. Yeah. Um, 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 and Jean actually, yeah. And Jean actually says to Terry in that uh, exchange, I, th I guess if you had your choice, you'd have picked a much younger grandfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now another great part about this movie, which to be sure is a great part of a lot of movies made back in the thirties. Um, Claude and I mentioned that 
we met through Television Without Pity in our first episode. The people who created Television Without Pity also worked on this website, which unfortunately is also now defunct, called Fame Tracker. And one of the running columns on that site was, hey, it's that guy, right. where they mention actors who pop up in a lot of things so that you know your, their face, but not necessarily their name. Well, in Stage Door, and as I said, a lot of movies from the time, you've got a virtual cornucopia of, hey, it's that guy's there. Absolutely. Yeah, because Lucia Ball and Eve Arden, as I mentioned, they're Judy and Eve. They both, of course, went on to have extremely successful sitcom careers. And Ball and Arnon also had um, very prolific movie careers as, in supporting roles, uh, mostly until, at least until they hit it big in their respective sitcoms, I Love Lucy and Our Miss Brooks. Right, which both of which started out as radio shows. Our, our, uh, I Love Lucy began as My Favorite Husband and got right. retooled into I Love Lucy, and our Ms. Brooks went directly to television from radio. Right, and Ann Miller, who, as Claude mentioned, was 14 years old when she got this part, and she doesn't look it at all, but no. she went on to star in many of... MGM's most well-known musicals, including Easter Parade, On the Town, and Kiss Me Kate. And then you also have people like Samuel S. Hines, who was a staple in Frank Capra movies. Mm -hmm. And then um, Franklin Pangborn, who plays Anthony Powell's waiter, Harcourt, the one who walks backwards yes. twice, <laughs> which is uh, kind of funny. And Jack Carson um, has a small role. Jack Carson, yes, uh, of uh, two guys from Milwaukee and uh, the spinoff movies of fame. Plus, he was a regular contract player at Warner Brothers for a long time. And so it's sort of ironic that the actress who plays the most well-known actress among the group and that she's actually been in something, Andrea Leeds, had the shortest career out of everyone in the movie. She got an Oscar nomination for Stage Door, and she was in movies for a couple of years, in, even in a few starring roles, but then apparently her fiance got killed. And then when she remarried, she decided to quit Hollywood, which is too bad because I think she is very good as Kay. Right. Her fiance, he got ill. He, he, he died of a disease. I don't remember exactly right. what it was, but yeah, he wasn't okay. killed specifically. Killed. Okay. <laughs> and um, a sort of ironic thing here. Uh, Constance Collier, who plays Miss Luth Anne Luther, who goes on to uh, be Terry's acting coach, although she was an actress in real life, um, I think I remember her appearing in a W.C. Fields movie somewhere along the line, but she was also an acting coach in real life. Mm -hmm. And after this movie, she actually taught Catherine Hepburn acting in Shakespeare. 
Because you yeah. remember that whole thing in the movie where they talk about Shakespeare and you get that great scene where the um, where the sort of ditzy character in the movie sa- says when everyone's saying that Terry's in love with Shakespeare and she says, oh, you're fooling. Shakespeare's dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, we meet yeah. so many people, so. Yeah, Mary Lou is her name, and she's played by uh, Margaret Early. Another thing about this movie that's so great for me is even though Terry is this stuck-up actress, for lack of a better term, when she comes in, which is why everyone's put off by her at first, in some ways, she's a lot smarter and tougher than everyone thinks. You know, it's not just the um, the fact that she storms into Anthony Powell's office when she finds out that he stood K- that he canceled Kay's appointment, because after all, as she points out, she doesn't have as much to lose as everyone else because she doesn't depend on it, but she also sees through Anthony Powell's casting couch routine or as much as they were able to show it on screen because, again, his code. But Powell, in his scene with Gene, tries to pretend that he's married with a son, but his wife and him have an understanding, quote-unquote, But Terry points out that the photograph he has of his wife is a photo of an actress who's been in a lot of cosmetics ads. And the photograph of the son is used to advertise a certain military academy, as she puts it. And has been for years. Yes. So there's a lot more on the ball with her than meets the eye. And another thing that is really important to remember and what I like about this movie, although I didn't pick up on it my first couple of times, it wasn't until I read um, this great book on screwball comedies of the time called Romantic Comedy in Hollywood by James Harvey. The important part of the movie is not the fact that Terry becomes a successful actress, it's that at the end, she and Jean finally become friends. And that's something that happens naturally over the course of the movie. You see sort of a rapprochement between the two of them when Jean comes home drunk from Anthony Powell's and Terry helps put her to bed. And then before that as well, when Terry, when uh, Jean is walking around in one of Terry's coats and Terry brings it up only after several minutes and Jean defensively said, oh, I just wanted to see how it looks on me. And Terry said, well, you can go ahead and borrow it. Right. And then, you know, you do get later once Jean mistakenly thinks that Terry is trying to steal Anthony Powell away from her, that they become enemies again. But after she goes into Terry's dressing room and shoots her out after Kay kills herself, 
And then Terry gives a curtain speech in tribute of Kay. Gene comes back and you see the look between the two of them and they hug each other. So you get a real sense of the friendship that develops at the end between the two of them, especially in that great last scene that they have when they're talking, when Jean's talking about how she's got nothing to look forward to. And Terry says to her, we're just a different race of people. That's all. Yeah. And the, the other thing I like about this, this film is, is it basically ends the way it begins. It's like we're, we're coming full circle. And if the movie had gone on for another hour and a half, we would have gotten yet another story of another actress kind of like starting to make her way, you know, in, in, and, and it starts almost exactly, or rather it ends almost exactly the same way it starts where we start off with the first thing we see inside the Footlights Club is is somebody's feet and and sweeping up some some trash. And at the end, we get pretty much the same thing is like, you know, close up of the dustpan and stuff getting swept up and the new girl coming in. Right. And the woman sweeping up, by the way, is Hattie, the maid there, played by Phyllis Kennedy. Mm -hmm. The speech that Terry's character gives at the beginning of the play Enchanted April, and by the way, when I tried doing research to see if this was an actual play, because there is a novel called Enchanted April that was filmed twice, once in the 30s and once in 91, 1991. As far as, like, 1992, I'm sorry. As far as I can tell, there was no real play called Enchanted April, but However. it makes <laughs> reference to a real play. The monologue that Terry's character gives, which she messes up completely in rehearsal, but delivers so poignantly on the opening night performance, starts out with, the calla lilies are in bloom again. That is actually a line from a play Catherine Hepburn had appeared in called The Lake, which was a notorious flop and which prompted Dorothy Parker to write about Hepburn. Ms. Hepburn runs the gamut of expressions from A to B. Right, right. So that was sort of a little in-joke there, as was the fact that um, Terry questioning everyone in rehearsal was referenced to a, what Hepburn did in theater and in movies in real life. Yeah, and the other thing, and here's one of those things where the two films tie together. The Calla Lilies Are in Bloom Again is one of those lines that for a long time people used to do their impression of Hepburn. Right. You know, similarly, we're going to come to a line in uh, All About Eve where people do Betty Davis based on a single line from that film. To wrap things up on stage door, Quentin Tarantino, when he was promoting Jackie Brown, said that it was for him a hangout movie. And what he meant by that was saying that although there is a story in it, hopefully you come to the movie to hang out with the characters and just groove on them. Mm -hmm. And he said that the movie that he thought was the apotheosis of that was Howard Hawks's Rio Bravo. Huh. And he also mentioned Dazed and Confused as another example of that. Now, 
I love Rio Bravo. Don't get me wrong. And hopefully we'll be covering it in a future episode soon. But it is my firm belief that Stage Door got there first. Also, two years after Stage Door came out, there was another movie um, that was based on a play that was dominated by a female cast. Unlike Stage Door, there weren't any men in this at all. Um, It was George Cukor's The Woman, Mm -hmm. which had, among others in it, Jean Crawford, um, Norma Shearer, and Rosalind Russell. And it's considered the best women's comedy of the decade. And I'm sorry, but I like Kukor as a director, but Stage Door is much better, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I love both movies, but but I'm given a choice. Yeah, I prefer Stage Door. Yeah, well, to me, the woman plays on all the stereotypical... Um, aspects of women that people accuse women of having and stage door doesn't lean into any of that. Also, one thing I just realized I should have mentioned part of the conventional wisdom or acceptive narrative that I grew up with when think talk, when being talked to about thirties movies is that mostly they ignored what was going on with the depression Mm -hmm. that there were just escapism for people. And while that's true to a certain extent, it's not entirely true. And stage door is a good example. Um, You know, you don't see people on bread lines or anything like that, but you do see that these women have been out of work for a long time. And then when Jean finally gets a call that she and Anne Mel- Annie are going to be dancing at the Club Grotto, the first thing she says when she hangs up the phone is, calls out the Marines kid, the dep- kids, the depression is over. Yeah. And it's understood that while people like Linda and Terry, who have sugar daddies or rich relatives to back them are able to get by. A lot of the other women aren't, you know, Kay, we learn early on is not only starving herself to death, she's way behind on rent and is in danger of getting kicked out. For example, I guess the, the, the thing behind that is it was kind of an escapism thing. I mean, not like, not that it was necessarily denying that a depression was going on everybody knew a depression was going on. But this was your opportunity to just get away from it for a little bit. And I think about, you know, something I noticed last night. Is I was reading articles about um, Christmas music on the radio, okay? Radio stations going all Christmas music all the time. And some stations will do it like right after Thanksgiving. Some stations will do it right after Halloween. There's one station that regularly does it sometime in September. But this past year, 2020, the first station to go all Christmas all the time was a station in Indiana, in July, they started playing the Christmas music. And so they, they did some interviews with, with program directors. And one of, the, one, of the prog- one of the vice presidents over a Cumulus Radio, which owns like dozens of stations, said something like, people associate Christmas music with the end of the year and people just want to get 2020 over with. And I think it's the same kind of thing. as like we're going to the movies because we don't want to think about 
the depression right now. We want to go somewhere else. Right. But as I said, Stage Door provides little hints of it. And bringing up the music uh, reminds me of one last point about Stage Door. Like a lot of movies at the time, there's not a lot of score in it, if at all. No. You know, most of the music is understood to be source music, whether it's Olga playing on the, the character of Olga playing on the piano or the orchestra that's playing before the play starts. And even when Anthony Powell has invited first Gene and then Terry up to his apartment, you hear music going on. Then all of a sudden it shuts off and you feel like maybe it's understood that he had the music on, but turned it off when he wanted to get really get into the whole seduction thing. Yeah. So there's very little score at all and it's well done. So any other thoughts before we move on? I just wanted to know, I mean, we talked about it being a stage play and then a film, and it also got translated into radio plays a couple of times, um, believe right. it or not. And and one of them, I, I've actually heard a few times on uh, Sirius XM, they have a channel called Radio Classics, which does old radio programs. And they've done the, it's, it was the Lux Radio Theater, which was hosted by Cecil B. DeMille. And so they would bring in most of the stars of the films to reenact their parts. And for whatever reason, they did not get Catherine Hepburn. They had Rosalind Russell in the Catherine Hepburn role for the film, but they also, but they did have Adolf Manjou and they did have Ginger Rogers. And it was, I just found it kind of interesting because what you had was in the film, it was Ginger Rogers and Catherine Hepburn getting equal top billing and then Adolf Manjou. And then for the Lux Radio version, it was... Ginger Rogers, then Adolf Manjou, then um, Rosalind Russell. This was recorded in the 40s, right? The yes. Oh, no, the, it was in 30. It Lux, was in 1939. Sorry. The Lux, yeah, the Lux, and, the Lux film uh, uh, play was 1939. Right. So I don't know if Rosalind Russell was considered a major star at the time. Remember, we're talking a year or two before His Girl Friday. Yeah. So so maybe she wasn't quite there yet that she'd still have to take third billing behind the other two. Right, but as it was, like Hepburn had to fight for the equal top billing because at that point she wasn't doing well in films. You know, this was kind of a little bit of a comeback for her because she wasn't she wasn't, you know, she was she was having some issues. As you mentioned, you know, she was being kind of a pain in the neck on stage. She was a little bit of a pain in the neck in the theater. It wasn't translating into big box office. And so it was going to be at the very least, you know, Ginger Rogers on top, maybe Manju and then Catherine Hepburn. And first she fought to get a bigger role. And then she managed to get the equal billing. Okay. So unless we've got anything else to mention. No, I think I'm good uh, for you. Then we're going to move on to All About Eve. Why don't we take a quick break and we'll be right back. Don't do drugs. But if you're going to, get a good story out of it. Fear and Loathing in Tacoma is the newest podcast from comedian Jeremiah Coughlin where he interviews rock stars, comedians, and generally interesting people about their psychedelic experiences. New episodes every Friday. Check it out on Podcast Republic, iTunes, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Sometimes hilarious, sometimes terrifying, always interesting. 
has a similar ending to Stage Door in that it's Here We Go Again, mm-hmm. but Claude will get into that. Yeah, so this film opens with an award ceremony, and we get the voice of Addison DeWitt, who is played by George Sanders, giving us a quick introduction to most of the main characters who are in attendance at the ceremony. And in that crowd, we have actress Margot Channing, played by Betty Davis, Karen Richards, who's portrayed by Celeste Holm, and her husband Lloyd, portrayed by Hugh Marlowe, and Margot's boyfriend Bill Sampson, played by Gary Merrill. Uh, We don't yet see the Eve mentioned in the title, although Addison keeps making reference to her. And then finally, we move into flashback and the heart of the story. Now it's Karen who's doing the voiceover, and she's relating how Eve is someone who's been hanging outside the theater for every performance of Margot's play, which is titled Aged in wood. On this particular night, Eve appears to be missing until Karen spots her near the stage door rather than out front. And it's here that we get our first look at Ann Baxter as Eve Harrington. Karen invites Eve inside to meet with Margot, and Margot is kind of abrasive at first, but eventually warms up to her. Eve tells a story about seeing the show every night, having followed Margot from her performances in San Francisco. Eve also tells a story about growing up poor in Wisconsin and losing her husband, Eddie, during World War II. Margot hires her as an assistant, which leaves her maid, Bertie, played by Thelma Ritter, feeling a little bit irritated. And it should be noted that Bertie doesn't trust Eve from the very start, and nothing really budges her attitude throughout the film. Eve really works her way into Margot's life. She seems to organize everything around her and even arranges a phone call on Margot's behalf when she forgets Bill's birthday. But Margot starts to view this as more intrusive than helpful, and this distrust grows when she spots Eve taking a bow to an empty theater while preparing to wear, uh, while pretending rather, to wear her aged in wood costume. Margot asks her producer Max Fabian to hire Eve for his office, but instead, Eve somehow becomes Margot's understudy without her knowledge. Karen starts to feel sorry for Eve, so she manages to arrange for Margot to miss a performance of the show so that Eve will have to play in her place. She does this by draining the car's gas tank while she, Bill, and Margot are out of town. Meanwhile, Eve has managed to invite all of the city's critics to attend the show, including Addison DeWitt, and she gets rave reviews. After the show, Eve attempts to seduce Bill, but he turns her down. Addison hears the attempt, but he says nothing, and he writes a column basically taking Margot to task for not making her way for the next generation of actresses. Shortly thereafter, Margot and Bill are having dinner with the Richardses at the store club when they announce their engagement to each other. Eve, who is dining nearby with Addison, sends Karen a note asking her to meet in the ladies' room. Eve expresses regret at first for everything that's happened, suggesting that Addison took her quotes out of context, but shortly thereafter, she makes it clear that she knows about Karen's sabotage and threatens to expose Karen if she doesn't recommend Eve for the lead in Lloyd's new play called Footsteps on the Ceiling. Karen doesn't have to make the recommendation, though, because Margot tells everybody at the table that she doesn't want the part, that it should go to a younger actress. Eve gets the part in Footsteps on the Ceiling, and the day it's due to make its out-of-town debut, Eve tells Addison what her next steps are going to be. She's going to marry Lloyd, who she says has professed his love for her and that he'll be leaving Karen. With her and Broadway's most successful playwright as a couple, he'll be writing all kinds of plays for her. Addison gets very angry because he's insulted that she thinks he can be manipulated as easily as everybody else has been. He reveals that he knows her backstory is a lie, 
that her real name is Gertrude Slesinski, which I had to turn on captions to figure out how to spell that, uh, that she was never married, which especially angers him because of her war widow story, and that she was paid to leave her hometown because she had had an affair with her boss. In short, she won't be marrying Lloyd or anyone else for that matter. We move back to the awards banquet. It's several months later, and Eve is the recipient of the award in question, and she's about to head to Hollywood to make a film. She gives thanks to Karen, Margot, Bill, and Lloyd, all of whom respond with anywhere between indifference and anger. Max has arranged a party in Eve's honor, but she tells uh, Addison that she won't be going. Addison offers to take her home and then continue to the party. When Eve gets home, she discovers a young girl in her apartment, a super fan who has managed to get inside and then fallen asleep. The girl talks about her love for Eve's work when the doorbell rings. She leaves Eve to answer the door, and it's Addison who tells her that Eve left the award in the taxi, so he's running it up to her. She says her name is Phoebe, or more accurately, she says she calls herself Phoebe. And she accepts the award, saying that Eve is resting. Addison leaves, and then Phoebe tells Eve that it was just the cab driver bringing the award back. Eve asks her to put it in her trunk in the bedroom because she wants to take it to Hollywood Hollywood with her. And the last thing we see is Phoebe putting on the robe that Eve wore to the awards banquet and standing in front of the three-panel mirror, posing with the award in her hands and miming acknowledgement to all the invisible fans. Okay. Now, uh, again, unfortunately, I have a couple nitpicks in that um, plot description there. Hmm. First of all, we actually do see Eve briefly at the beginning at the awards ceremony when she gets up after her name is announced by the eldest actor who's um, giving the award to her. And he's played, by the way, by Walter Hampton, who would later appear in Makowitz's Five Fingers a couple of years later. And also, you mentioned that Karen, Margot, and Bill go away for the weekend when Karen arranges for the gas tank to be oh, empty. That was clearly Lloyd, it's, yeah. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah. Now, um, we should mention that, first of all, this is based on a short story uh, called The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr, which is told entirely from the point of view of Karen Richards, although there is a name change in there. Instead of Margot Channing, I think it's Margot Clayton, who's the name of the actress. And she's the one who tells Karen the story about how Eve came into her life and nearly took it over. And at the end, we find out that um, Eve has taken Karen's husband away, which, of course, doesn't happen in the movie. Also, Mankiewicz added Addison DeWitt and everyone else (laughs) for the movie, whereas the story was just the three characters. Now, um, I mentioned that even though both of these plays were movies were set in the world of the theater and they're both known for their dialogue and they both center on women, the approach taken in both of these movies is radically different. Um, As I mentioned, Stage Door, Gregory LaCava encouraged his actresses to improvise. Joseph Almakowitz, on the other hand, not, not so only much. directed the movie, he wrote it. And he wanted 
everyone to follow the dialogue. I mean, he was willing to work things out in rehearsal. If the actress said, hey, you know, I'm not really getting the hang of, of this line, he'd try and think of something that was easier for them to say. But otherwise, it was pretty planned out. And there have been more than a few critics, uh, among them Richard Corliss, um, who, when he was alive, by the way, was also a customer at the video store. Um, he wrote a study of Hollywood screenwriters of the studio era called Talking Pictures. And he included Mankiewicz in the category of themes in search of a style, by which he meant the writers were more important, were more interested in saying things than they were in actually writing dialogue that sounded natural and stories that were natural. He basically accused Mankiewicz of writing dialogue that sounded like two writers had worked on it all day. But I believe that it works here because, A, we're talking about theater people who I know in real life because, you know, a lot of them were customers at the store and even worked with someone who was involved in the theater. And they love to hear themselves talk. <laughs> While Mankiewicz, like another screenwriter we're both fans of, Aaron Sorkin, has been accused of having all of his characters sound the same. In All About Eve, I think there are different shadings to everyone. You know, you've got Eve, who, although she's a fan of the theater, stands like a, a fan. We've got Karen, who went to Vassar, and so she's very educated, but she's not a theater person. You know, she speaks more directly. Right, she's and in the theater, we, not of it. <laughs> yes, and then you've got Birdie, who takes no guff from anyone and who speaks her mind bluntly. So right. and this, this, was have, a, this was a part written for Thelma Ritter, was it not? Right, because Mankiewicz um, had loved working with her on um, a previous film that he did with her, A Letter to Three Wives, mm -hmm. where she also plays a servant-type character and is also blunt-speaking, so... As she, as, she, as she often is in her in, in her films. Yeah, no, she's one of my favorite character actresses from around that time. But, you know, again, I think the dialogue fits the characters here. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, we I was I was actually I wasn't going the Aaron Sorkin route, but I was also thinking of like Patty Chayefsky, who gets the kind of the same rap where, where you know, the characters tend to sound alike and, and that they are very... Um, very finely written, you know, down on, on, on kind of almost a granular level. And, and it's the same kind of thing where, where, you know, if, if you're not listening too closely, they could tend to sound a little bit alike. Right. And the other thing all three, Shayevsky, Sorkin, and Mankiewicz had in common is they also love to write speeches. Mm -hmm. But I think they were very good at writing these speeches. You know, a clear example for me is when Bill gives a whole speech about the theater to Eve when she, he thinks she's being pretentious about it or when they first meet in uh, Margot's dressing room. 
Now, as I said, the movie does get a lot of attention for its dialogue, but I also think it deserves to be talked about in terms of its structure, because essentially this is a mystery where the mystery is what is Eve really like? Is she as pure and naive as uh, everyone seems to think she is at the beginning? Because you remember you've got Margot's line early on to Bill where she says, you know, I feel very protective towards her. And when does Mankiewicz first start dropping clues as to Eve's real nature? So I'm going to ask you, Claude, when you have watched this, what do you think is the first clue in the movie that Eve may not be all that she says she is. Well, you know, you you do get like weird little hints throughout the the more than the first half of the film that you know this this could be not what you seem to think it is, and maybe you're just reading too much into it. And and you do go back and forth. This movie is what something like two hours and twenty minutes. It's a long movie, but. It's only about 145 that everything really comes out and you recognize that, you know, she's not just evil. She's evil, you know, and, and that that she is definitely on about something and that she has plans in mind and machinations and whatever. Everything up until that point, you can kind of write off one way or another. Oh, it's a misunderstanding. Oh, it's a thing. Oh, we're just reading too much into it. You know, maybe this, you know, it, and, and Baxter plays it so well. That, that you kind of buy her innocent routine right up until the point where she comes right out and says, nope, I'm not that innocent. Right. And, you know, credit should also go to Mankiewicz for including that ambivalence there, which a lot of movies of this type don't even bother with. You know, they depend on the actress or the actor to carry it off. And so that's why the movie works so well. But again, again, back to the original question, what do you think is the earliest clue that Mankiewicz drops to let the audience know that Eve may not be what she says she is? Well, as I mentioned, I think that, that, that you know, Bertie doesn't take to Eve at all, right, from the very beginning. And she does have an exchange with Margot where Margot finally confronts Ronnie because Bertie feels like maybe she's being usurped a little bit, but she also just never really trusted her. And at one point, Margot comes right out and says something like, well, you don't like Eve, do you? And Bertie says, well, do you want an answer or an argument? And Margot says an answer, and Bertie says no. And she says, well, why not? Well, now you want an argument. <laughs> okay. Um, I actually think he drops it in the very opening scene hmm. because... You remember in that opening sequence. Are you talking after, about the awards at the awards dinner? At the awards ceremony, yes. Okay. At the awards ceremony, when we see it at the beginning of the movie, um, after the guy announces that the Sarah Siddons Award, which by the way became a real award after Afterward, this movie yeah. <laughs> for Sh- Chicago Theater Group, um, and. Eve stands up and everyone's applauding. Max is applauding. Addison is applauding. And then he looks to the two women who are sitting on either side of him. And neither Karen nor Margot are applauding. No, they're just stone Now, Margot 
she's played by Betty Davis. So if you're watching this the first time, you think, okay, I can get that. She just doesn't think much of all this. But Celeste Holm not applauding, especially when you hear her introduction about she's only married to the theater and that's why she's here. You might think that the entire purpose of the movie is to answer the question, why isn't Karen applauding? So when I saw the movie the second time, that's what hit me. I said, wait a minute, he's shown you right up front yeah, I, I I get that. And at, at the same time, you know, it's you're still kind of like, as, as you said, like this movie is a little bit of a mystery. And um, Addison actually says in his opening narration, he says it more than once, the phrase all about Eve. And so you're, you're not 100 percent, you know, sure where he's where he's going with that. And yeah, I guess it is meaningful that that, you know, these two particular characters aren't necessarily responding the way you would expect them to. But you're not quite sure, yeah, what what more there is to it, and and the other thing is, you know, as a lot of good openings like this do, you kind of forget about it until you come back to it, and then you realize, oh, this is what was going on. So right, you know, so yeah, I could I could see yeah, if, on a, on a second review, you would you would see that as yeah, an early hint that that things aren't quite what they seem, but if you just kind of roll with the story, you know, yeah, they, there's there's a little bit more going on there. Right. And we should mention, speaking of Birdie, that, you know, when Eve is telling her sob story at the beginning in Margot's dressing room, that, of course, Margot is overcome, even though she didn't even want to see Eve in the first place and was acting completely haughty towards her at first. And Lloyd and Karen, of course, are deeply moved. Mm-hmm. And Bertie is the one who said, what a story. Everything but the bloodhound snapping in a rear end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, can, can we talk about that scene also briefly? Is, is This is one of the things I really, really liked about, about Betty Davis is in this scene, she is the, she, she's just been through the show. She's taking off her makeup. She's like covered with the cold cream and the grease and, and whatever else that's, that's designed to take off her makeup. And she does pretty much the entire scene with this crud on her face and the and the um, the bands that are holding her hair down so that she can wear the wig and, and so forth. And it's one of those things I've always liked about Betty Davis is, is that she is willing to go that extra mile to look crappy in a film. You know, she she doesn't care what she looks like if, as long as it serves the character. I've seen it. You see it in in Baby Jane. You see it in um, um, what's what's the other one? Um, the Catered Affair where she like gets herself looking really dowdy through the entire film. And she does it like really fine. And I know you see her briefly in the opening scene, but really the first genuine amount of time that you spend with her character, she's just looking not so great. Well, she also did that earlier in her career as well. Um, in now Voyager, um, she's playing the uh, spinster um, late child yeah, I, of Gladys I, George, and she does that. And then also in um, The Little Foxes, the last movie she did with William Wyler, she wanted to make her makeup look very white and garish. And she mm-hmm. and Wyler actually had some big fights about that. And then also the movie where she plays Queen Elizabeth I, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. 
she looks very uh, off-putting there as well. Right, but that was also, you know, again, you know, the look that 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 she was supposed to have. And I was going to to cite now Voyager as well, and I kind of decided against it because what you've got there, yeah, she's a spinster and she's she's looking very plain, but she's not necessarily going out of her way to look especially bad the way she does in this film and in you know, baby Jane, where she just looks like somebody who's putting on the same makeup every single day without ever taking it off. And, mm-hmm. and in catered affair where she is looking like just this older woman, who's just kind of beaten up by life. Right now, although on balance, um, Mankiewicz made more movies, I think with men in the central roles than with women in the central roles. He was known in his career for being a quote-unquote women's director in that he often found the women and the actresses playing them more interesting than the male characters. And you sort of get that, not sort of, you definitely get that here with um, Eve, uh, Margot, Karen, Birdie, you know, all played by wonderful actresses and all interesting characters. And then there's one other actress we haven't mentioned at all. Uh, This was one of the early appearances of Marilyn Monroe, who plays Miss Caswell, a graduate of the Copacabana School of Dramatic Arts, as Addison puts it. And except for George Sanders as Addison, the men weren't as interesting in the movie. Now, and Mankiewicz clearly wasn't as interested in them. Maybe Gregory Ratoff as Max has a couple interesting things there. But Gary Merrill and Hugh Marlowe were basically Fox contract players. And I think they were put in there because of that. Now, Merrill at least adds a little shading to his character there, especially when he gets very angry at Margot after she comes in um, when she only finds out from Addison that Eve is now her understudy and hears about how great she was in the performance. And she and um, Bill get into this huge fight after everyone leaves. And the way Meryl plays that is very good. Marlowe is kind of one note on the other hand. But I have to say, and I've seen him in quite a few other movies, including 12 O'Clock High, which came out for Fox the year before, and Meet Me in St. Louis and Seven Days in May, that he was kind of one note in general. But here it doesn't hurt the movie too much. No, I, I I think you're right in that respect, and and they wind up, you know, you know, Bill's Bill's speech that during during his argument with Margot, notwithstanding, I mean, they they do wind up being a little bit one note, and you know, my weird error earlier, notwithstanding, they're they're practically interchangeable. You know, you could easily swap one for the other, and it really wouldn't have made much of a difference. It, you know. As opposed to the women who, yes, they're all very individualized characters. You can easily tell them apart. They've got their own personalities. The men are just kind of throwaways here. And actually, you know what it kind of reminds me of is um, Carrie, the film Carrie, where it's the same kind of thing. You've got these very strong women out front and the boys, eh, 
you could swap in one for another and it wouldn't really make a whole lot of difference. Right. And it's also reminiscent of the previous movie that Makowitz did with Thelma Ritter, A Letter to Three Wives. And another thing we should mention in conjunction with that movie is both of those movies and then a third movie he did after that called The Barefoot Contessa. All three movies have three narrators or... In A Letter to Three Wives, it's not really narrators, but the stories are told from the perspectives of three characters. And it's telling to me anyway that in A Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve, where the central characters who were telling the story or whose through point of view we saw the story were mostly women, in All About Eve, it's um, Addison is the one male character. But again, he's the one male character who has nuance to him. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Barefoot Contessa, even though the story, as Mankiewicz puts it, put it later, was the Hollywood version of the Cinderella story, the characters telling the story were all men. And... I don't know about anyone else, but I don't think he did it as successfully in Barefoot Contessa, Mankiewicz, that is, as he did in A Letter to Three Wives and especially All About Eve. Right. But in All About Eve, he's also willing to like while you do get the the voiceover narration from from Margot and from Addison, I don't think you get a third person, do you? Karen. She's the first person who we see the flashbacks. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, Karen, through. not Margot. I'm, I'm sorry, that's that's my goof. Um, Karen and Addison, we don't get Margot. Um, yes, we do. Do we? Yes, when they're at the airport dropping Bill off. Oh, that's right, you're and right. And then when she's describing how things are going when um, Eve is her assistant and her first... At least from Margot's point of view, everything is like heaven. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Until right. the phone call. But but having said that, despite the fact that you've got these narrators, you also have Mankiewicz, who is willing to once in a while jump into the whole third person omniscient, where you're seeing a couple of things that nobody who is narrating could have possibly known about. Okay. And I'm thinking, um, like, for instance, like the the scene at the at the end. Where, where Phoebe is checking herself out in the mirror, okay? Right. So, th- so there are going to be a few scenes which really nobody narrating the story could possibly have known about. Right, although that's after everything's wrapped up. Sure. Now, um, a couple other um, nice touches that I uh, noticed when I watched the movie again. Um, during the party scene for Bill's Welcome Home, where we get the line that, as you said, Betty Davis imitators have used all over, which is... Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. During the party, Margot gets drunk. Mm-hmm. and eventually insults everybody. Although, as William Goldman pointed out in his book, Adventures of the Screen Trade, the reason why the audience doesn't get mad at her, even though the characters do, is because all of this is about the fact that she's afraid of getting older. And so you sympathize with that. But getting back to the party, 
um, there's a sequence where she's sitting at the piano while a piano player is playing Franz Litz Liebestrom. For the fourth time. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> once he stops, he starts to play a more upbeat tune, and then she makes him play Liebestrom again until Bill comes over and tells her to knock it off. And then Max comes over asking for a bicarbonate of soda. And then later, when Margot and Karen are stuck in the car while Lloyd has gone to try and uh, get gas from a gas station, um, Margot and Karen start to talking, and Liebestrom is playing on the radio. Yes. And she turns it off and says, I detest cheap sentiments. And then right after that, she gives a very moving monologue about the fact that she's afraid of growing old. And so I thought that was a nice uh, mirror point with the music. Right. And, and, and yeah, it was just it was just a great speech in general about, you know, basically the difference between, you know, being a woman and being a prof- like you have to give one up to be the other. And so you and, and, and I can't remember exactly what it is she said, but but basically that that. At some point, you have to get back to being a woman, and you kind of forget that skill. Right, which, you know, I don't necessarily, I mean, I'm a man, so it's easy for me to say, but I don't necessarily agree with that. I do think that women are able to have careers and home at once, but the conflict is real, and the way Mankiewicz writes it and the way De- Davis delivers it is really good. Um, another thing that I s- read about when I was uh, doing research on this after seeing it, it's sort of implied from what I've read that this is the definitive portrait of a critic. You know, <laughs> okay. that they're all acid-tongued and... Uh, venomous as uh i think lloyd puts it um in the movie at one point and they're all sort of egocentric and also this is not only because sanders won the best supporting actor oscar for it but also just in general this is considered his definitive role from all the movies that he played and I, I'd like to see more of what Sanders did acting-wise before I make that bold of a statement. But certainly, I would say of all the performance of his that I've seen, this is his best performance. I would agree with that. And, and actually, he, he, um, he kind of alludes to it himself at the beginning of the film where he, where he talks about basically his, his role in the, in the theater. He's like, he's my native, this is my native habitat, but I don't do anything. I'm just a critic, you know, and that's not specifically what he says, but you get the basic idea. It's like, you know, um, actually he makes the, the Bible reference. I don't toil, nor do I spin, um, right. but I am a critic and I'm essential. And, and so yeah. he, he, he's kind of inserted himself into the theater ecosystem, but, at the same time, he admits that, you know, he doesn't really do anything but kind of stand on the sidelines and throw bat, uh, brick bats. Although, you know, um, he does get some shading when oh, yeah. Margot shows up to what she thinks is going to be uh, a reading that she's going to do with Miss Caswell. And 
it's up to Addison to tell her, first of all, that Ms. Caswell is getting sick in the bathroom. But secondly, that Eve has already given the performance there. He's very humbled by what he saw because, you know, he says that, you know, when I see a great star or a true star, I want to make sure people know about it. And he says, in time, Eve may be that great star. And we even learn when he does the voiceover, when he's backstage after Eve gives an actual performance in the play, that he did think that she was very good. And then at the end, when he's exposing all of her lies... Eves, that is, Mm -hmm. you know, he's particularly angry, as you mentioned at the beginning in describing the plot, that she passed herself off as a war widow. He says, it's not only a lie, it's an insult to those who died in the war and the woman who loved them. So even he has stand. Oh yeah, yeah, he absolutely does. And not be and, much. And, 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 he had them. And in fact, when he when he's talking with Margot right after you know as she arrives too late for the audition, he he refers to Eve as like she's you in a few years. You know, so he's 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 giving some some credence to Margot's greatness, but at the same time, he's also acknowledging. But this is the next generation. You know, this is this is what's coming next. Right, and of course, Margot is not having it. very unhappy about that in ways that Addison would not have known. Right. So uh, let's see. Is there anything else that you uh, feel like you have to bring in here? Or do you think we've wrapped this up? I think we have wrapped this one up. Okay. So now we have to tell you where you can watch both of these. Because, of course... We don't have, uh, well, not all of us have libraries to go to. So uh, Stage Door is available to rent or buy through Fandango, Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, and most other direct streaming services. And All About Eve is also available to rent or buy through uh, Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, Fandango, Vudu, and other streaming services. And the next episode we're going to do is going to be uh, called Love Maybe, which basically we're doing two movies that are about platonic relationships between a man and a woman that could also be um, love between them, even though we may or may not see it explicitly. And the two movies we're going to talk about are Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love and Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. And you can stream... In the Mood for Love on HBO Max, the Criterion Channel, and Canopy. Right, and Canopy Canopy is a cool service. It, you it, you have to kind of attach to a public library or a school library, and in which case it becomes free, which is pretty neat. Um, 
And then uh, Lost in Translation, you can stream for free with ads through Peacock, and then you can rent it through most of the usual channels. Right. And you can find myself, Sean Gallagher, on Facebook. And if you have a question or a comment, you can email us through wordsandmoviespod at email.com. And you can find me on the Twitter machine at Claude Call, or you can check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. Now, even though you will be hearing this in 2021, we should mention that this is the last episode we are recording in 2020. So by the time you do hear this, I hope 2021 is already better for you than 2020 has been. Right. And with any luck, you will have like a little shot in your arm or maybe two by that point. That'll be a beautiful thing. Here's hoping. Let's hope. So until next time, we'll s- goodbye. <laughs> Thank you very much. Take us out, Rebecca. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. <laughs>